All right, well, we're in Revelation chapter 16 tonight, and um, tonight we're going to be studying the bowls of wrath. Thank you so much for, or the vials of wrath, whatever, you know, your translation may say. Um, this really, it's an exciting portion of scripture for a, a number of reasons. And let me just say before I get into that, uh, there are some various views as to what these particular judgments are. Uh, and by that, I mean there are some commentators who believe these seven expressions of God's justice and wrath to, to really just be a reiteration of the trumpet judgments. And um, definitely if you go back and uh, in your devotional time, read about the trumpet judgments, you'll see there are um, consistencies. They're, they're consistent in nature in some ways and then also uh, in the way that they roll out in the order and in, you know, there are categories. When we went through the trumpet judgments, I identified three different categories that they fall into. Well, these seven judgments here fall into similar categories. Uh, and so I'm just saying there are some who say, well, really this is just a reiteration of the trumpet judgments. But but I would say to you that as we've been considering these expressions of God's wrath, remember, it's, it seems to me to be clear in Scripture that they're chronological in nature. I mean, to, to, somehow, to somehow lift these judgments out of a chronology and, and make them a reiteration doesn't seem to me to flow within the structure of the book of Revelation. Uh, in addition to that, I'd mentioned to you, and I, I, I do think that there is a divine purpose behind this, there's a growing intensity. Um, and as hard as the seal judgments are, as, as you know, extreme as they are as expressions of God's wrath, what we see is that there is a growing intensity of God's wrath that's being poured out. And I mentioned to you that that's possibly indicating the desire of God to draw people to repentance, right? I mean, he doesn't, always, he doesn't always start us at rock bottom. Oftentimes when he's seeking to, to gain our attention or to draw us to repentance, um, oftentimes, and, and I'm making a distinction here between the chastening hand of God and the wrath of God because they're two different things, but I think that they, I think that they uh, are emblematic of something about his character which is to draw people to repentance. And so oftentimes he doesn't just start with letting us hit rock bottom. I mean, it's, it's, it starts off small, the chastening hand of God. You know, the things that God brings into our lives or allows into our lives to wake us up in a sense. You understand what I'm talking about. And it would seem that this is in fact his heart, even during the great tribulation, even during a period of time where humanity is blaspheming God for these expressions of wrath. You'll also notice uh, that they're more severe, like I'd mentioned, but also that they're global in, sc in scope. And so when we looked at the trumpet judgments, there was a portion of the earth being impacted by those particular judgments, whereas in the bold judgments, they're, they're total. Uh, in with respect to global scope. So, so I would say that, you know, I personally lean into the traditional view of interpreting uh, this, these seven uh, bold judgments. Uh, this is the 
traditional interpretation uh, of the church. And, and so we would see this as an expansion of the seventh trumpet judgment. You're going to notice as we look into these uh, different judgments that they're similar to the plagues in Egypt. Um, and I think, look, I think tonight is where maybe tonight you're thinking, man, I really came for a word of encouragement, Pastor, and I got bold judgments tonight. Well, well listen, we're going verse by verse. So you knew, you knew it was going to happen. All right, you knew it was going to happen because chapter 16 comes after chapter 15 and you should be reading ahead, so don't blame it on me. But um, one, of the, one of the positive elements of this particular chapter is we are really in the final countdown now. We are really in the final countdown. And so, you know, as the scroll was being unrolled, uh, there were seven seals that were broken. There were seven trumpet judgments. Now we find the final seven bowl judgments, which will, which will essentially end the judgments of God during the great tribulation period for the most part. We don't necessarily know, like some would say, this really is all beginning to happen right at the three and a half year mark. Um, I would say it's probably closer to the end of the seven year tribulation period. Um, and and what we see tonight is going to precede God's judgment on the Antichrist kingdom. So when we get into Revelation, this is kind of the encouraging piece. When we get into Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we're going to see the judgment of God on the one world economic political system. We're going to see the judgment of God on the one world religious system that's been established by the Antichrist. We're going to, in Revelation chapter 19, have the glorious opportunity to look into the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is just so fun. It's a great chapter to read. And then, of course, we'll be getting into the thousand-year millennial reign, uh, the, new, the ultimate judgment after the thousand-year millennial reign, the releasing of Satan from the bottomless pit, the deception of the nations, the great white throne of judgment, uh, the new Jerusalem that will descend from heaven, and that glorious picture of God's eternal kingdom. So um, that's what you have coming to you. But today, bowl number one. <laughs> the Bible says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Um, I look, I, I just would uh, get, take a second here and encourage you to read through the Minor Prophets because a lot of what the Minor Prophets talk about are dealing with this particular time, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the great day of God's wrath, etc., etc. Um, and so the terminology here that's used even in this first verse would have been very familiar to uh, the Jews at the time. They would have been connecting this all back to portions of Scripture in the Old Testament. So, of course, the command, this voice that's giving the command uh, is the voice of God, and he's directing seven angels. So the first, the Bible says in verse 2, went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. So in verses 1 to 4, we're going to see three particular judgments, and they fit within the category of God's wrath upon the earth, the sea, and then also um, rivers and springs or fresh water, similar to the, the first category in the trumpet judgments. This particular expression of God's wrath on the earth leads to, in some sense, in some way, a foul and loathsome sore. Maybe your translation says 
uh, in an ulcerous sore. The word literally means a running sore. And so this is a, this is a sore that just doesn't go away. Um, it is it's, it's putrid. Uh, it is uh, unsolvable by the medicine of man. It is, in fact, the wrath of God. And you'll notice here that it's very particular, right? It's God is able to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't. And so this particular group of people uh, are those people in the tribulation period who have the mark of the beast and who have worshipped the image that was developed or created by the false prophet. Remember, those who take the mark of the beast, all of them will be unbelievers. Um, They will be expressing their uh, volitional submission and worship of the Antichrist, And so this mark of the beast isn't going to be taken by accident. Um, It's not going to be accidentally taken by somebody who's a person of faith. It's going to be a distinguishing mark. If you were living during this time, um, you probably would have connected this to the worship of Caesar uh, because it was required for all of those who were in the Roman-dominated world to offer a pinch of incense as an expression of worship to Caesar. And so everyone was required to go into the temple once a year or, you know, uh, a Roman temple in your area and declare these words, Caesar is Lord. And so, of course, this was one of the reasons that the early church was so severely persecuted. Of course, the early church and the Jewish people were scapegoats for the Roman people. That's a topic for another time. Um, but they were persecuted as well because they were unwilling to submit to or to worship Caesar. And so if you were living during this time, there would have probably been um, a really clear connection. Um, but what I want to point out to you in this, this first bold judgment is that God does know how to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't belong to him. You know, if you go back to the, the Exodus story, What you see is Moses rolls into Egypt and as those 10 various plagues are poured out on the nation of Egypt, you know, and there were so many various reasons that God had for those particular judgments. Definitely one of them was that it was an expression of God's judgment and his superiority over the idols that were worshipped in Egypt. But as you look at those various judgments that were poured out, what you'll recognize is God was always able to make a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. God knows those who are called by his name. And not only that, but listen, this is is also an expression of the righteous character of God. You know, Abraham, when he was met by those three strangers, one of whom he recognized to be God, Remember, there was that bargaining that Abraham entered into over the city of, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he just, he dialed in on a particular quality of God, and it was the righteousness of God. Far be it from God, he said to God. I mean, it's a lot of guts to say this to God. Far be it for God to judge the righteous with the unrighteous. You know, if, there, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, God says, okay, if there's 10, God gets into Sodom and Gomorrah and there's only one. So guess what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? But God was able to distinguish, as Abraham rightly recognized, between those who belong to him and those who don't belong to him. The Bible says, and I'm so solidly convinced of this, that God has not appointed his children unto wrath. 
You can say amen to that tonight because that is a, that is a good thing. You put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and you have passed from God's wrath into God's life. The second bowl that we see here in verse 3 is this. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. You can just spend a couple of minutes imagining uh, what that probably looked like. Remember, 71% of the earth's surface is covered by ocean or sea water. And so the vastness of this really uh, is mind-blowing. And of course, you know, there's a, a question, is this really blood? Is it like blood? It would seem from the original language that we're talking about some event that makes the waters of the sea like human blood. Whatever the case is, the result is that the oceans and the seas that are teeming with life, and we know that they are, I mean, there's such an abundance of life in the ocean waters, everything that's in the oceans is going to die. And so listen, if you're cruising on your sailboat during this time, and you're making your way from Long Beach to Hawaii, you're going to be cruising through a lot of dead, rotting, stinking critters, probably looking a lot like what the sea looked like during the time of Noah. Uh, so the, te- the sea will not be teeming with life any longer because everything in the sea will be dead. The third bowl, God bless you, thank you for coming tonight. The third bowl, verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. So not only does God strike the salt water, but God strikes the fresh water as well. Uh, and, of, and of course, remember, both of these bodies of water in a typical sense are sources of food, you know, for literally millions of people. And so what's happening here consequ- conse- consequentially is that there's a food source that dies away for people. But then in addition to that, I just want you to think about the hydrological cycle because this is how the hydrological cycle works. Water evaporates from the sea, creates clouds in the sky. Clouds come inland, they hit the mountains, and then what happens? The water that's accumulated in the clouds falls as precipitation or rain on the land. That flows into rivers and streams and tributaries that go back into the ocean, and there's this cycle, right? That's what the hydrological cycle is. That's the the cycle of precipitation that really waters the ground. Now, just imagine this. All of the waters of the sea have turned into something like blood, and so you've got clouds in the heavens that are filled with water that is red like blood, and then as you're going about your daily business, if there is any daily business during this time, and it happens to be a day of great precipitation, like you're up in Seattle. Well, what's happening is you're being rained on, but not just rained on by normal water. You're being rained on by water that's like blood. So three very, very severe global judgments that will come upon the earth. The Bible says in, in verse 4, let me just reread that down to verse 7. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, uh, and there's just, you know, it's hard to really understand what that particularly means when the Bible says angel of the waters. You know, um, if you're reading uh, the Apocrypha or Jewish mysticism, um, it would seem that there are angels that are set over 
uh, different aspects of God's creation. Uh, it, it may be the case. We're not necessarily sure. Uh, we do know that God allows his angels to be ministering servants to those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, hey, I don't know if there are various angels over different elements of creation, but I do know the Bible says that we have angels that serve us. Isn't that an amazing thing? You may have a guardian angel. I pity my guardian angel. I'll probably have to apologize a lot to that that poor angel that got assigned to me. And you know, there are times where I'm like, hey, where is that guy? Like, what, what is going on? I don't know if that's the way that it works. Uh, but I do know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, he was praying and he was, he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And there were angels that came and ministered to him. And then the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 that there are times where we maybe even entertain unaware angels, right? Because God has a way of concealing who they actually are. Um, but it's an encouraging thought just to consider, you know, if you come to me and, and there's a, a difficulty that you're going through or persecution that you're dealing with, oftentimes what you'll hear me say is, God, surround my brother or sister with warring angels. I'm not going to pray a hedge of protection because don't, you don't need to be surrounded by bushes, Right? You don't need a hedge of protection. You need warring angels that are going to fight on your behalf. And so I would encourage you, you know, just as we're thinking about spiritual warfare, uh, it is a good thing to be praying for warring angels around brothers or sisters in the body of Christ. In fact, the Bible says that it's the angel of the Lord that makes his encampment around those who fear him. And so, check this out. The Bible says, you are righteous, O Lord. This is the declaration of this angel, the angel of the waters. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous, this is just so good, true and righteous, can you say this tonight? True and righteous are your judgments. Man, true and righteous are your judgments. Hey, I just, I want to spend a minute unpacking this tonight because I think it's really important. Um, and it's not as if you haven't heard this before as we've gone through this book expositionally. Um, but I think it's contained a number of times because uh, we need to be reminded of it. We for sure, we sh for sure need to understand it because it's going to be the song uh, in heaven. It's going to be the sayings in heaven. It's going to be the declaration of heaven. But I don't think that we wait until heaven to declare the righteousness of God. I don't think that we wait until we're in heaven to declare that everything that God does is true. And I think it's very easy, you know, as you read these particular judgments, it might be easy to, to, to have this thought in your mind, man, that's, that just seems so harsh. You know, maybe for some of you, the book of Revelation is hard to read because, you know, there's just an aspect of the character of God that's expressed that just, it, it feels like it's a little harsh to you. You know, and you have this framework of God where you see him as a God of love and, and in a way, in a way, it seems like a, a disconnect for you to see the God of love as also being a God who expresses his wrath, a God who is just, a God who is willing to give people their just due. But I think, I think it's important for us to remember that, that 
as God is a God of love. In fact, God would not be a loving God if he wasn't all, also righteous, if he wasn't also just. Now listen, I don't mean to get too theologically deep tonight, but the love of God is a non-contingent quality or, or attribute. In other words, he has is, he is eternally been love. God is love. We can say that because the love of God has been eternally expressed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an attribute or a quality of God that always has been, always is, and always will be. Whereas the justice and the wrath of God are contingent qualities. Uh, in other words, they're dependent. They're dependent upon, you will not know the justice or wrath of God until there's sin. Until there's something that deviates from the divine plan of God. And so there is a difference when we talk about the, the, the love of God and the wrath of God, there is a difference. They're, they're not apples and, and oranges in the sense of God's eternal qualities or characteristics. But, but we do know that God will express his love by demonstrating his righteousness and demonstrating his justice. Um, if, in fact, God did not do that, he would not be a God of love. God can't just turn a blind eye to sin. And so what the angel does here, and by the way, it's just really good to take the angel's advice and to declare these things about God. He makes a declaration. He says, God, you are righteous. God, you are always right. Listen, God, you are always right in the sense of your character. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing off. There's nothing false about you. As, as your character goes, God, you are always right and you always do the right thing. When we talk about God being righteous, we're talking about not only what he does, and sometimes this is kind of where we land, what we're talking about the ways of God, and God always does the right thing. Well, why does God always do the right thing? God always does the right thing because he himself is always right, right? There's that quality or, or attribute of God where he is righteous. In fact, the psalmist said this in Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways. Ezra said this in a declaration to the people as uh, the temple was re being rebuilt and he, as he was assembling the canon of the Old Testament, he declared God to be righteous. You know, there are so many beautiful qualities and attributes of God that we need to be focused on. Maybe our, our Christian culture today needs to remember that our God is a righteous God. He is a righteous God. And you know, I think in a world where there's so much wrong, you know, in a world that's so perverted, in a world where there's so much sin, you know, we're saturated in this, in, in this world. We have all sorts of information coming in uh, to our minds and to our hearts. And if we're not careful, what happens is we start to, we go into the spin cycle in, in the unrighteousness of the world and we can really become confused because we begin to see the, the world and the ways of the world through the framework of sin instead of through the righteousness of God. God is righteous, the Bible says. And listen, he is the one who is and who was and who is to be. So he is righteous and he is also eternal. The righteous attribute of God is connected to his eternality. So, so in character, he's always right. In what he does, he is always right because God has seen it all. God knows all things. You know, I, I learned this over the course of time as I interface with people and, and Christian leaders. 
that the way it's supposed to work is wisdom should come with experience and time, right? I mean, you hang out with somebody who really loves God and has loved God over the course of time, what you learn is that these people are really wise and they're really wise because they've experienced a lot, they've seen a lot, they've watched God come through time and time again in their lives. And so they don't stress out, they don't live necessarily with fear, they're not full of anxiety because they've been in this place before, right? More month than money, relationship difficulty, confusing thing ha things happening circumstantially. And because they've been in this place time and time again, they've seen God come through, they have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, guarding their hearts and minds. Now I've, I've experienced that as, a, as somebody who's walked with the Lord for a long time. I'm not going to tell you how long, but it's long. It's a long time. And, and I remember looking at people who had walked with God for 25 years or so, and I'm like, man, they're really old, and now I am that person. Uh, and there are times, you know, there are times where Rachel and I will go through something, and it's just crazy and insane, and what do we do? We look to the past. We look to how God has been faithful to us before, how he's never let us down. You know, how, how God has always come through. And we anchor ourselves to the faithfulness of God. Look, I'm, I'm saying all of that to say that God, it's not just through experience and time. God knows all things. He knows all things. He is the eternal God. When you struggle with what God does, remember that he is the one who knows all things you don't. Right, we talk about how righteous his ways are. God always does the right thing. And from our perspective, it's like, man, it's hard for us to see how that works together. And sometimes we start making judgment calls on God, like, God, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? Or why are you allowing this? And remember, we've got this little tiny sliver of information. We've got this little tiny sliver of information that we're making, you know, pretty significant conclusions upon, whereas God, he knows all things. He sees all things. Every piece of data, every variable that could be possibly known is known by God. And so this is, this is the basis of how God operates. He makes decisions. He does things, yes, of course, off of his divine, eternal, timeless plan, but he does it knowing all all things simultaneously. I'm just saying to you, the next time you go through something you don't understand, remember, you are trusting in the one who knows all things. Father knows best. We can commit the judgment into God's hand because he does see everything, he does know everything, and we can be at peace with that. The second thing I want you to note here is this. He says, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who wasn't, who is to be, because you have judged these things. The second thing that we note is this, the righteousness of God is from like, I think, our human finite perspective established because God does in fact judge. Like what kind of God would we be worshiping if he did nothing about sin? What kind of God would we be worshiping if there was no justice with God? You know, and the truth is this, like we don't necessarily ourselves personally rejoice when God demonstrates his justice because the truth is this, we're all in the same boat. 
You know, God has not dealt with us as we deserve. God has been merciful. It's interesting to me how quickly as Christians we can be to pick up the rock and stone somebody when we ourselves have committed similar sins. And if not similar sins, then we ourselves have sinned. It's interesting that as you look at the testimony of Scripture, it literally has taken God 3,000 years just to get to this three-and-a-half-year period of time. God's been speaking about this particular moment for 3,000 years. You say, well, why did God wait so long? I say to you, because God is long-suffering, because God is merciful. You know, I, I'm not quick to ask God to demonstrate his justice because his long suffering gave me time to repent. Amen. It gave me an opportunity to come to my senses and to recognize as he was patiently working with me and arranging circumstances to bring me to rock bottom so I could look up and understand where my real redemption comes from. You know, there's not some desire for God to demonstrate his vengeance or his wrath because it's been through his long suffering, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It is the goodness of God. This is what Paul says, do not despise the long suffering of God because it's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. You know, we don't take advantage of the long suffering nature of God because it's the very long suffering opportunity of God that leads us to a place where we have an opportunity to turn from our sins and turn to him. The Bible says, this angel speaking, that the, the judgment was exactly what they deserve for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets uh, and you have given them. So like when we're in heaven, it's not gonna be saying, hey God, put the brakes on or God, dial it down or God, tone it back a little bit because the judgment is gonna be correlated perfectly with the crime that was committed. And then, and then what you notice in verse 7, and this is important, John is, he's watching and he's hearing this, then another voice comes from the altar and makes a similar declaration, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Um, you say, well, why are there two? Well, the Bible says, let something be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. I mean, it's kind of the declaration of heaven. It's almost as if God is following his own rules. Imagine that. And so John knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, heaven itself declaring twice that God's ways are righteous. There's a little bit of difference here in this second declaration. Uh, this angel says that they are also true. They are also true. They're free of lie. They're free of falsehood. Um, you know, why is this important for us today? Because the fact is people question God all the time. People think that they are more righteous than God. But as we read the Bible, what we discover as believers is the divine plan of God. You know, I think, I think it's important for us as we're looking at the book of Revelation, what is one of the benefits that we have in reading this book? Well, we have some understanding of what it is that God's going to do. What is it that God's up to? And we need to know this so that we can align ourselves to the purposes of God. And as we align ourselves to the purposes of God, we're able to pray like Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I'm not, in other words, listen, God, I'm not just all wrapped up in what's going on circumstantially in this world. I've looked to the book. I've looked to your very specific revelation, and I see that there is a divine plan and purpose that is unfolding before my very eyes. 
And as I read your book, like the Bible says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As I read your book, I understand in some sense what it is that you're doing. And now I'm able to engage in fulfilling your purpose. Listen, I think, I think this is true for the current war that we see happening in the Ukraine. And I, I know you guys feel the same way I do. You know, you, you turn the news on and you, you see a video or you read a story about a missile hitting a, a hospital that, that uh, houses women who are pregnant and babies who've just been born. And, and you know, there's a, there is a righteous indignation that stirs within you. There's no doubt about it. Um, and it would be easy, it would be easy for us if we didn't know God to, to think, man, God, if there really is a God, how could this happen? If there really is a God, how could something like this happen? How could a God of love allow this to happen? But we know the Bible. We understand that the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We, under, we understand that the world is filled with people who are sons and daughters of disobedience. That Adam committed that initial transgression and handed over the authority, the ruling authority of the world to the devil. And then from Adam to every single human being, there was a, there was a sinful nature that was inherited. And so what we see in the world with respect to wickedness is a reflection, not of God, but of us. And so we're able to step back and say, hey, listen, we understand what this is about. This is about the wickedness of humanity. But we as believers in Jesus Christ bring the hope of Christ into a difficult situation so that what we're going to see, and I believe this with all of my heart, what we're going to see is God taking something that people intended for evil and turning it around and using it for good. That's what our God, God does. Yeah, and so the Bible goes on to say in verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So a uh, bowl or vial number four is poured out on the sun. Um, and look, I don't know necessarily what this means. I've heard all sorts of different explanations. Um, I will tell you guys, like I've said to you before, I don't need some natural explanation to explain the supernatural. You know, so some people, they're always like, well, it's a meteor. Well, it's a nuclear holocaust. Well, like in this case, it's a supernova. I don't, I don't need that. I, I don't know what it's going to be. Um, and it may be none of those natural things. We don't need the, the natural world to explain the supernatural. God's going to do something that's never been seen before. And so somehow this bowl is going to be poured out on the sun. And it, and it may be that there are scorching solar flares. This is no mere sunburn, okay? Uh, sunblock 50 is not going to help you in this situation. I mean, your, your skin, you, you won't be here. Well, you might if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're here during this time, it is going to be like third degree burns on the body or even more extreme than that. So, so you, you just start to compile these bowls of God's wrath. And you would think, listen, you would think, oh my gosh, this is so, who could not cry for mercy? Yeah. Right? Who could not concede? Like if this is a moment to tap out, and to trust in God, like this is the moment. But then again, 
What do we see? We see people blaspheming God. I think this is the last time of seven times that we see this as a response of humanity. And they chose not to give him glory. You know, somebody said this a long time ago, and it is true. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. People respond to the revelation of God in very different ways. And for some, you know, their heart is melted under under whatever the revelation is. Maybe it's the justice of God. Maybe it's a difficult circumstance. Maybe it's a storm. Maybe it's, it's God's unparalleled love. Of course, all of it comes back to the cross of Christ. That's fundamentally what we're responding to. And for some people, listen, their hearts are, they, they're melted. They respond in faith. They surrender themselves and humble themselves before God. And then on the other hand, you have people who are like Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh is such a, it's such a grieving story to read about Pharaoh. And you think about all the opportunities that he had to respond to the expression of, of fundamentally God's love, the desire of God to reach into that man's heart. And yet he responded. He was the one who hardened his heart. Uh, ultimately, what happened was, and if you read the book of Exodus, this is what the original language conveys, that Pharaoh, every time there was a plague or a demonstration of um, God's judgment, a revelation of who God was, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and yet Pharaoh gets to a place where the, the, the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, God was saying to Pharaoh, look, if this is the way you want it, this is the way that you're going to have it. And the condition of his heart was settled. You say, Pastor, that's kind of scary. I say, don't ever put yourself in that spot. Don't ever get to the place. Don't ever get to the place where like in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says the spirit of God will not always strive with man. You know, I think sometimes we, we just take for granted the, the grace of God and the mercies of God. And it's, it's almost like there's just this expectation, right? There's this expectation, well, I'll have an opportunity down the road. You know, I'll have, I'll have an, I, and I get this all the time. You know, Pastor, I'm just not ready. I'm not ready to believe in Jesus. There's things that I want to do. And, and you know what? Maybe when I'm on my deathbed, and it's like, really? Like, you, you, can you guarantee that you're going to have that opportunity? Can you guarantee? It's the, the best time to share this message is when you're flying on an airplane, all right? Because you can say, hey, listen, well, what happens if this airplane goes down? Because you're not going to have an opportunity now is the time of salvation, the Bible says. And so listen, we never want to be in a place where we're taking advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. The Bible says today is the day. Bowl number five. The Bible says in verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So, so the fifth bowl is specifically on the throne of the beast. So this is where we begin to see, you know, there's just been this trajectory of the Antichrist kingdom. I mean, it's, it's kind of been growing in, in global power and strength. And now what we see is ultimately uh, the diminishing or the downfall of the Antichrist kingdom. And you can imagine all of the accumulated pain and suffering here, right? There's, there, there's pain from um, the loathsome sores. 
There is the scorching of the skin, and now there's this darkness, right? There's been physical and now possibly psychological judgment or, or justice to the extent where these individuals begin to gnaw on their tongue. And, of course, that is a sign of going psychotic. Um, this is, in fact, the beginning of God's judgment on the Antichrist. The Bible goes on to say in verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs. We've talked about how uh, demonic entities sometimes are given the authority to perform miraculous signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Bowl number six is poured out on the Euphrates River. Um, of course, the Euphrates is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. It was like a dividing line between the promised land of God and then the area of Babylon, um, ancient Babylon and ancient Ur. Um, but, but what we see here is that this bowl is poured out, the great river dries up, so that the kings of the east, there are all sorts of speculations as to who these kings are. You know, people will say, well, it's, it's China and then the, a, a confederation of all of these various Asian countries. And so their armies will be coming um, from the east. They'll cross over the Euphrates River, ultimately making their way to the Valley of Jezreel. Um, but there is this um, terrestrial geographical judgment of God um, that is leading up to the final battle or the final war. Um, and all of the armies of the nations of the world will be gathered there. And that's what we see really in verse 13. That there's an unclean spirit. There's a, a demonic force that comes from the mouth of the counterfeit trinity. From the dragon who is the devil. From the antichrist who is the beast. And from the other beast who is the false Prophet, um, why are these particular demons likened to frogs? I just want to tell you, I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. I'm not going to make a T-shirt out of this. Don't worry. Um, but but I thought I, th I thought this. You know, frogs are foul. They're unclean. They're slimy creatures. And uh, and maybe maybe that's it. You know, but we do know that their purpose is to lie and deceive. And so they will go to the kings of the earth. And they will, they will be deceiving them so that they bring their armies to the valley of Jezreel. Um, oftentimes what we see is that evil, wicked rulers, kings, political figures, it's not just that they're evil and wicked, they're actually being demonically directed or guided. You know, I think... Maybe that's the case right now for Vladimir Putin. I mean, there's no doubt that there are principalities and powers that are at work behind this particular individual. And we know that that's the case because there is literally zero concern for human life whatsoever. Doesn't matter who it is, old, young, a male or female, he has absolutely no value for life itself. And we know that that concept, that way of thinking, that philosophy of life where you don't value life finds its origin and source in the devil. That's where it comes from. You know that tonight? So, 
So all of these armies gathered together, um, ultimately to oppose Christ. So their purpose in gathering together is to fight with each other, but eventually what's going to happen, and I think that this is the, the demonic intent behind this, the devil knows that Christ is coming back soon. He knows that he's going to descend upon the Mount of Olives and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so he gathers all of these armies in the Valley of Jezreel. Uh, and ultimately, they'll go from fighting each other to fighting against Jesus, which I just want to tell you tonight, word of wisdom, if you get nothing else, it's not really smart to fight against Jesus, okay? I mean, just bad idea, bad idea. The Bible says in Revelation 19, I don't want to get like, too far ahead or steal the thunder of that chapter, um, but just a, a sword goes out of his mouth and he slays all the armies of the world and the blood flows up to the horse's bridle. And, and then right is, is just an interesting kind of parenthetical piece here in verse 15. Jesus says this, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon or Mount Megiddo. Um, just want to say to you, you can connect Revelation chapter 16 verse 15 to Matthew chapter 24, 24 verse 36. And that's the Olivet Discourse. I've talked to you a number of times. My view is that the Olivet Discourse is actually dealing with the seven-year tribulation period. And it's not just the Olivet Discourse. It's also the parables that are tied to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins. He gives the parable of the faithful and the evil servant. He gives the parable of the talents. And in all of those, the message is make sure you maintain an attitude of preparation because you never know when the Lord is going to come right? Make sure you maintain. For the virgins with their oil, it was making sure that their wicks were trimmed because the bridegroom could come at any moment. Well, that particular parable was tied to the, what Jesus said in chapter 24, verse 36, and that is no one knows the day or hour. Are we talking about the rapture? Are we talking about the second coming? I would say to you, based on the context of chapter 24, we're talking about the second coming, and the message is the same to those who are living during the tribulation period. Now listen, there is a, there's just a good solid principle for us in this. Uh, like even though it may not directly apply to us, we want to be in a, in a place where we're ready to see our Savior. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like we want to be living in a place of anticipation, right? Really thinking, hey, maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day. During the... During the Jesus movement in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s, this was like a theme. It was Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Like we're ready and we're living in a, a place of preparation and we're not, we're not living in a way where we're going to be ashamed at your coming. Lord, we've prepared ourselves so that when you come, we will hear the words, well done. And those words come from one of the parables, the parable of the talents that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 17, the Bible says, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Like you'll notice a difference here. Those of you who see this uh, little inconsistency, we're not talking about on the earth or something on the earth. We're talking about in the air. Uh, some people say, well, this is really the, the, the spiritual abode. And so we're talking about God's judgment or justice on principalities and powers. It's a possibility. 
And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. So we're wrapping up these judgments. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. So in this seventh bowl, there is going to be obviously, as we just read, an earthquake that is going to be more significant and more severe um, than any earthquake that has ever been experienced in the history of humanity. And you say, well, how, how significant is it? Well, verse 19 says, now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We'll talk about that later. But this earthquake is going to be so great that the great city, difference of opinion on what this great city is. Some people say it's Rome. Some people say it's Jerusalem. I think we're talking about this great rebuilt city of Babylon. This earthquake is going to be so great, it's going to split that city into three different parts. And then all of the urban centers in the world, this is a global earthquake, all of the urban centers in the world will be leveled. And God, in this point, when the Bible says that God, uh, Babylon was remembered before God, we're talking about all the cumulative sin that is now going to be punished. Uh, and then in addition to that, how significant is this earthquake? Well, there are massive topographical changes that will affect the earth. The Bible says in verse 20, that every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And then another piece of this judgment, verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And so the final piece of this judgment is um, there are, you know, a talent, some say is about 100 pounds. And so there literally is global hail falling on all of the population of the earth, um, each piece of hail weighing about 100 pounds. And then a, the response, of course, of humanity is to blaspheme God. I do want to note that they're not blaspheming Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad um, because none of those are the almighty God of heaven and earth. Um, they know exactly who is doing uh, these things. And so they blaspheme the Lord God Almighty. And I want to wrap up uh, and just say to you tonight, listen, what does it take, right? What does it take? God will go to great lengths to get our attention. What does it take for God to get your attention? Some of us, you know, we dig our heels in and, and for whatever reason, right? There's a circumstance that we've gone through in life and so we're angry at God. There's sin that we still want to engage in. And so, you know, we, we try to run the course and, and sow the seed as it were. Um, and, and yet, all along, the Bible says God is standing there knocking on the door of our hearts, seeking to draw us to himself. And, and, you know, tonight you might be thinking, well, listen, I mean, really, give me one good reason. Give me one good reason why I should turn my heart to God. I'll give you three, you know, three nails that pierced him, two in his wrists and one through his feet. The greatest reason for us, the greatest expression of the love of God to you and to me is the sacrifice of his son on the cross. Listen, as a believer in Jesus Christ, what compels us to walk in ways that are pleasing to God? Well, Paul said this, it is the love of Christ that motivates us or compels us. We're driven. 
Just as nails were driven into his wrists for me, my heart is driven to live a life that is pleasing to him. It is his love that compels us. What has God been speaking to you recently, seeking to lead you into or pull you away from? What step of faith has God been calling you to take that is beyond yourself in such a way where you'll actually be stepping out of the boat and onto the water? And you know, you've been pausing, you've been he hesitating, you, you're locked in a spot. And maybe tonight what you just need to simply remember is this, the, the motivating, compelling thing in your life that causes you to follow the voice of God is the cross of Christ. Because if he did that for us, then we should be willing to do anything for him. And tonight, maybe, on the other hand, you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, you've, you've, you've looked at the church, and you've looked at relig religiosity, and you've thought, well, there's really no compelling motivation for me. And listen, neither of those things. The church doesn't save you. Being a religious person doesn't save you. Fixing yourself morally doesn't save you. Jesus Christ is the one who saves you. And he, he, and he saves you. The message for you tonight is this. It is his love that is calling you to receive forgiveness and grace and mercy and cleansing and a brand new beginning. You don't have to be defined by your past failure. You don't have to live a life burdened by guilt and shame. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so tonight, that's right, that's good, that's good news. It's good news. Tonight, maybe for you, you need to take that step of faith and you need to trust in Jesus. I want to encourage you tonight to, to move forward in your relationship with him because of the nails that he took for you. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for Jesus. And Father, thank you for how merciful and long-suffering you have been with us. And God, you are. And even as we consider the seven vials or bowls of wrath, God, we conclude the same thing that the, the angel did and the same thing that that voice declared, God, you are true and righteous in all of your ways. And tonight, I pray that we would not wait to be obedient. We would not resist the voice of your Holy Spirit, we would not harden our heart like Pharaoh did. We would not misconstrue your long suffering with us as an advocacy for our rebellion. But tonight that, that the Son, what the Son did for us would melt our hearts and we would yield and surrender wholeheartedly to him. Tonight is, we're just wrapping up in this moment of prayer. I just want to ask two things tonight. Maybe for you tonight, you need to put your trust and faith in Christ. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you surrendered and submitted to the Savior? Have you been hardening your heart to the voice of God? And as he, in a, in a sense, in a way, has been knocking on the door of your heart, you've, you've bolted it shut. Every time he knocks, you turn another lock. And today I want to encourage you, listen, because of 
the depth of the love of Jesus for you. It's demonstrated once and for all. You say, give me one good reason. I say, because he died for you. Because he died for you. Greater love has no one than this, the Bible says, than one lay down his life for his friends. And you can be the friend of God tonight if you would just unbolt those latches and open the door of your heart and let the Savior in. Would you let him in tonight so he can bring that forgiveness and that healing and that new beginning so that he can be, bring the, the restoration, the restoring work that only he is able to do. Tonight, I want to also ask a question. Maybe as a Christian, you've just been digging your heels in on something and, and uh, it's just, you, you've been resisting. And, and I just want to tell you that the, the more we harden our hearts, the harder and deeper those calluses grow to the point where we actually can be insensitive. Our hearts can be, in a way, cauterized to the very voice of God. We don't ever want to be in that spot. Maybe tonight there's a, you just need to retrace your steps to the last time God spoke to you because you haven't heard his voice for some time. You need to remember what it was that he said and you need to be obedient to that. And that tonight is going to be the place of renewal for you. It's going to be the place of returning to the Lord and experiencing the reviving power of his Holy Spirit. Tonight, if you need to put your trust and faith in Christ for the first time, or maybe this evening as a Christian, you, you need to go back and be obedient to the very last thing it was that he said to you. I wanna pray for you tonight. I wanna ask you, would you raise your hand this evening if this is you? Give me the privilege tonight of praying for you. Just stretch your hand up high. There's something tonight for you to respond to. God bless you. I see your hand right here. And I see your hands in the back on the right. Thank you so much. I see your hand here in the center, over here on my left. Anybody else? I see your hand. Thank you so much. God bless you. God always honors the step of faith. The Bible says that Christ will not turn away those who come to him in faith. And so... Know tonight that as you take this step of faith, you will be received by God. Anybody else? Let me see your hand tonight. I see your hand over here on my right. Thank you so much. I see your hand in the back. God bless you. Just let the Spirit of God do that softening work tonight. or anybody else. I see your hand, thank you. I see your hand too. I just, you know, feel compelled to say this tonight. I think there's somebody here and, and you want to take this step, but... but you're afraid that God's not going to come through. You're afraid that 
that God's not going to hear and God's not going to answer. And tonight, you need to submit that fear to God and choose to trust in Him. You need to choose to trust in Him. You need to let Him do. He, he will. He wants to. The very fact tonight that you're even being prompted, the very fact that tonight you recognize there's a step to take is because God is speaking to you. It's God who is showing you this. We don't come to these conclusions by ourselves. By ourselves, we run from God forever. But God speaks to us, and tonight he's speaking to you. And, and I just want to ask you this evening, will you take that step of faith? And if this is you tonight, and you're afraid, you're afraid that God won't come through. I want to tell you, God will always be faithful to his promises. Would you raise your hand this evening? Just stretch your hand up high and take a step tonight and let him do that work he wants to do. God bless you. Thank you. put your hands down. Let me pray. Father, thank you, God, so much, Lord, for your work in this place, and God, for each of these hearts that matter so deeply to you, and we pray tonight, God, that as these precious souls take these various steps of faith, that God, you would, you would be the one who would answer. You have brought them this far, and Father, we believe with all of our hearts, you will not fail now. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, this is what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer this evening, right where you're seated. Uh, and then afterwards, we're going to stand in worship. And for those of you who have raised your hands, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And I'm going to invite you to just share with one of our follow-up leaders the step of faith that you've taken. Maybe tonight is going to be putting your trust and faith in Christ for the very first time. Maybe tonight for you... It's going to be, as a Christian, handing something over to God or walking in something he's called you to walk in. But listen, don't, as I, after I lead you in this prayer, don't close out tonight without coming forward and getting prayer from one of our follow-up leaders. And so tonight, follow me. If you raise your hand tonight, follow me in this prayer. Father, tonight, it's you that's spoken to me And tonight I'm moving forward. Tonight I'm responding to your call by turning away from my sin, by believing in Jesus, your son, by receiving your forgiveness, your cleansing, your empowering, your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that there would be a new work. I pray, God, that you would pour out new wine. I pray you would give me new strength. In Jesus' name, amen.